Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fisherman's Post Saltwater Podcast Series. This episode is titled Live Baiting for Swansboro Trout. I'm going to be talking with Captain Matt Littleton of Friendly City Fishing Charters operating out of Swansboro in the Emerald Isle area. We're going to be talking about the whens, the wares, the rigs, the baits, and then ultimately the techniques. Uh, my name is Gary Hurley of Fisherman's Post. Fisherman's Post has been serving the saltwater fishing community of North Carolina since 2003. We've been bringing you fishing reports, fishing information, fishing tournaments, fishing schools, and here in our latest and greatest efforts, the Saltwater Podcast Series, where we reach out to our captain guide friends from up and down the coast and ask for them to share with us their thoughts, their insights on how to catch more fish more often. And pushing this whole effort forward is my podcast partner, Billy Thorpe of Thorpe Creative. Billy, let's talk trout with dear friend, Matt Littleton. So Gary, I was just taking a new drink out of my, or a drink out of my new koozie by SRD20, which we'll talk about in a minute. But yeah, I'm super excited to have Matt on the show. He's always a fun time. Also one of our uh, captains that help us out with fishing reports, so he, um, you know, a little known fact, he always comes with a joke before, uh, before pre-show, pre-show. So that's an insider, insider thing. So it's always a good time to have him on the show and making the show possible are our sponsors. So we want to make sure we shout them out. We got Marine Warehouse and SRD20. Uh, so we'll jump over to talk about SRD20 for just a second here. They have sent us over some uh, wash and wax, some waterless wash and wax. They also have some graphene uh, spray protectant. And Gary, they just sent over today, I believe I got this in the mail, a new pink soap, no wax. Well, new to me. I just got it in. So um, I'm going to come over there and clean your boat for you. What do you think? Dang on, man. What a great sponsorship. <laughs> We need, we need a vacuum cleaner sponsor. We need a dishwasher sponsor. A babysitter sponsor. A babysitter sponsor. <laughs> oh, man. But no, they, they, they've they been supportive, reached out to us to uh, sponsor the show, so we've really enjoyed that. So you guys go be sure to grab some of their product to keep your boat clean, and uh, they get all kinds of good stuff on their website. So srd20.com. Go check those guys out. And yeah, I often talk about the graphene spray because I think that's what's most applicable to me with uh, – keeping the boat in the water. But man, if you're one of those that trailers and you pull your boat out, man, that waterless wash and wax is a smart product, you know, smart for like, as soon as you pull it out and you want to give it a, while everything's loose and wet, man, it'll help clean it up immensely. Or even if you're parking an area where it just isn't, you know, water isn't that accessible, man. I mean, again, it's smart products, whether it's the waterless wash and wax, wax and wash, or if it's the graphene spray, again, Graphene spray is my answer for not waxing easier, lasts longer. And uh, I'm glad that SRD20 reached out, both the sponsor of the podcast and, you know, I've now got a new product to play with for my book. Heck yeah, man. So you guys go check them out. Once again, SRD20. And then we also want to shout out Marine Warehouse Center, longest running sponsor on the show, making this possible and free for you every week. So get a quick message from them. We'll be right back. At Marine Warehouse, we have everything from trailer, trailer parts, engines, engine parts, new boats, boat parts, a full store. We have a service department. We are your one-stop shop for marine equipment and hardware. We offer a wide variety of parts and accessories for all your marine needs. The best part about working at Marine Warehouse Center is to help customers really get the most out of their coastal lifestyle and share our love for the water. At Marine Warehouse, we're here to get you out on the water because of our love for the water. We like being out there and we want you out there with us. There you go, man. 
There's the yep. crew. They are. Well, I've already, I recently talked with them about one of the winter projects we're going to do for the Hurley boat, fish post boat, whatever we're calling it, man. Uh, for some reason, just the way my sea chaser is configured, the engine, even all the way tilt up, still touches the water, is still in the water. So this winter, man, we're putting a jack plate on there. Not only will I get the benefits, the traditional benefits of a jack plate, but it'll also help keep that engine from sitting in the water when it's at dock. And so, again, that's part of the consultation I enjoy from Marine Warehouse Center. Give them a problem. They come up with a solution and they're going to exercise the solution this winter when I bring them the boat like I do every winter. Keep them busy, man. Bringing them the boat. We'll have to get some, we'll have every to, year. We'll have to get you a new boat, Gary, so you don't have these problems. A new Maybe. motor with a new boat and all that fun stuff. Uh, but, yeah, and if you're like me and you don't have a boat, just go in there and buy some tackle from them. I saw some fishing rods, reels, coolers, different things like that in their store. Buy some apparel. I actually need to go get me a new hat, man. My my big my big old forehead here is taking the light and shining it back to the camera, so i got to fix it. But uh, I need to run out there and grab a hat. And and I would say I would see Emmett or hope to see Emmett, but man, he is busy. He's got a new project going on, Gary, and and somebody sent us in a, a photo on, uh, but really a billboard. That's what it was. They, they got a billboard, uh, a new event that he is doing, and um, it's probably one of the most entertaining places on the planet. Is where you'll find Emmett. So where in the world is Emmett, Gary? Can you take a guess? He's at an event, and it's one of the most entertaining places in the world. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. yeah. United States or abroad? In the U.S. Vegas. My gosh, dude, you're pretty good at this. You're pretty good at this. Here he is. This is his own show. Welcome <laughs> to Vegas. Look at him. I didn't even know it. He's uh, juggling some plates or something. I'm not sure. Smoking a cigar. Got his bow tie on. Well, that's great. I would love for Emmett to welcome me to fabulous Las Vegas. What a friendly town that would be if Emmett was their spokesperson. Man, he's got, he's got their own. He's got his own show there, Gary. It's what he does in the off season when he's not busy fixing your boat. Uh, he, he drops is, some weight apparently too when he goes to yeah. Vegas. Man, good for him. Yeah, man, he gets in shape. He's like a movie star, you know. Yeah, he just fits the part, loses the weight, and moves on with it. So <laughs> good for Emmett. All right, man. While well, I get another photo, I'll show you here of a trout. This is Danny Swift of Liverpool, <laughs> England. I don't know why I want to laugh when I see this. Cotton released <laughs> I know. a speckled trout that fell for a live shrimp uh, near Swansboro. It says fell for a live shrimp. I actually thought it was a live shrimp at first glance, <laughs> but he's it looks pretty proud of that fish. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if you're from Liverpool, you have lower expectations of what a speckled trout should look like. I mean yeah. that's great. Yeah, man. I mean that's what that's what kind of fish that that would be me if I was submitting pictures like that's. I mean, most of the captains and guides will tell you part of their business is managing expectations. So when he brought that up, the smart captain would be like, "Man, they don't get much bigger than that. Let me get a photo." Wow, man, that is way bigger than any I've seen. Good job, all the way from Too bad. It's over slot, so we have to release it. But man, otherwise, God, that would make for a great fish stick. <laughs> Great fish stick, jeez. <laughs> well, Gary, I'm gonna pass it over to you, man, to talk about what we got going on this uh, fall or this winter for our fishing reports, because uh, I know we, you know, going into it. So I'm gonna pass it over to you. Okay, yeah, man. You know, so we've been doing weekly fishing ports, and those, you know, go from April through October. So now that we're in November, we're out of the weekly realm, 
and we're not just pulling back to bi-weekly and it makes sense because the fishing does slow down and you know the captains do have less to say but in addition to bi-weekly just to give value to our members and try to bring some more people on we're doing special live show events so you know to all our members they'll know well in advance when we're doing these live shows they'll be able to email in with questions beforehand they'll be able to tune in live and ask questions in real time we'll have a couple of captains up there at a time so they'll be able to complement each other share ideas and uh, i'm just excited about the notion of live live show live airing i mean the whole thing sounds cool to me and then again we'll return to weekly fishing reports come april yeah, man, I'm excited to run those live shows. Those are always, when we've done them before, even for the podcast, they've been a ton of fun, very interactive. So if you're not a member, be sure to go uh, check that out on the website and become a member to have access to those. And, man, I think that's it, Gary. I think that's I think that's my part of the show. Until later, I'll be back. Until later, until Billy's Best Takeaway here at the conclusion of my conversation with Matt. Coming back for Billy's Best Takeaway. But, yeah, man, I'm going to lean into the mic. I'm going to say you know very happy to have good friend of the show matt littleton friendly city fishing charters out of swansboro emerald isle looking forward to talking live baiting for swansboro trout with you how you doing today i'm good billy or i'm good gary and billy how are y'all <laughs> <laughs> man we're doing great and as fond as both billy and i are of you though no one and I mean, no one gets on the podcast without answering the two questions. And when you tell me you're ready for question number one, I ask you question number one. Let's go for it. Question number one, why should we tune in? Why should we listen? Why should we watch you say anything about a speckled trout? Um, uh, well, I can't really get them off the wall right now, but I've got some hardware up there that, you know, I've won over the years. Um, I've been fishing for speckled trout my whole life with, it's been a family tradition here in Swansboro. Um, I've been doing it professionally for eight years now and I am just eat up with a trout. It's trout and redfish are just what we do pretty well in Swansboro and I, I can't get enough of them and it's what we do all year. All right. Well, I knew that trout was one of your passions and I also, via the friendship, know another one of your passions. And your non-fishing related question has to do with perhaps your other most enjoyable passion in life, and that would be Harry Potter. So I have three trivia questions for you, Harry Potter, easy, medium, and hard. Let's start with easy. What is the yep. British term for a non-magical person? Muggle. Yeah, that was geared as eagle. All right, intermediate. What is Voldemort's real name? Tom Riddle. Tom Marvolo Riddle. <laughs> I think I need an extremely hard. We're blistering through these. All right, last Harry Potter trivia question. Who tells Harry about the room of requirement? Dobby. Ding, ding, ding. You nailed it. You crushed it. You are, <laughs> I hope you're half as good at speckled trout as you are Harry Potter. Well, if I could add a caveat to your last question, it differs between the books and the movies. In the movies, Neville finds the room requirement and tells Harry about it. In the books, Dobby finds it because they call it, the elves call it the come and go room because the house elves of Hogwarts have known about it forever. Wait till I see Danielle Mirabito tomorrow and tell her the problematic nature of her hard trivia question that she looked up for me because I literally <laughs> know nothing of Harry Potter. Danielle well, needs to do better. Well, I remember that day on the boat, I told you that a lot of people like Harry Potter, but I live for it. So I hope this <laughs> gave you a little proof of it. 
Well, let's get back to your other passion. Let's get back to your speckled trout passion. And again, just about every conversation, I think, when people are trying to learn, trying to get better, is the old, you know, when and where. So again, I know you can find a trout throughout the year, but I'd like to tailor this conversation more to fall, late fall, or even winter trout in the Swansboro area. So when is it that you start getting really excited and about the trout season in the fall and, and it becomes more predictable or more productive? So I'll say like mid-September is whenever I start really putting effort in trying to find them. Um, you know, even if I'm running redfish trips and there's plenty of redfish around to be had, that's when I'm going to go, you know, if we've got a little time at the end of a trip or if I've got some time before I pull the boat out, I'm going to go hit a couple places near the inlet. You know, like I'll go hit a couple places around Emerald Isle, a couple places just to see if there's some moved in. And then you're really just kind of holding on to them from there, moving around. The, they'll start to move in late September, early October. They'll be in the marsh. And then as the water starts to cool off, they'll gradually work their way back into the rivers and the creeks around our area. You know, they'll move back into Schoolhouse Creek, the White Oak River, uh, Pettiford Creek, Queens Creek. Um, just kind of get back towards those places. But early season, I'd be out towards um, – the inlets, you know, bear, bogue, browns, all those places around there that hold fish. And if you're not really sure where those are, just go take a boat ride one Saturday near those inlets and you'll you'll see where the people are uh, in October. In October, just go take a boat ride and you'll find them. Um, the uh, From there, I won't put too much time on the, the marsh bite just because that's not really when in the when they're in the marsh i'm throwing artificials more often than not just because the water's still warmer and there's still a lot of bait stealers in the water a lot of your pinfish croaker hogfish everything out there and a shrimp has a rough life because anything that can walk swim or fly is trying to eat it and if you're using shrimp in the marsh and you're not in a ridiculous trout bite they're just going to get nailed and hammered and torn to pieces and um so i'd say what we'll do is focus on once they get i'd say about usually mid to late October through December is when we're really heavy targeting um, these uh, trout back in the creeks. And that's when they get up in the headwaters of these creeks, you know, way back in the back where it narrows up and starts to wind. And those places is where we're really going to find the bigger trout or not the bigger trout, but the well bigger and more numbers of them. So I'm going to, you know, I usually circle around and ask a couple questions. So the, near the inlets is where it starts. And that's because the trout are moving in from the ocean into the area like in the fall time? Right. All right. And then I think you answered my question, but I, just to be clear, like I, when we were talking about like October through it, December for numbers and sizes, is, is that the best time for both numbers and size? Or if I said, Hey man, I want to book you for my best chance to catch a citation trout. What time of year is that? Late November. Okay. Mid to, mid to late November. Well, you've already hit on question number two or topic number two, but I mean, I want to go into more detail for sure. And that would be the where, and everyone wants to know where, and you know, of course they would love for you to pull out a pin and put it on a map, but that isn't going to happen. But man, let's help people understand the trout habitat, you know, especially in that Swansboro area. And, you know, you can start at the inlets and work back again, or you can just go to the prime land. I'll just let you decide how this conversation goes. So what they're going to do in early season when they're out in the marsh is that they're going to find those current breaks. And if it's a current break that falls off into a hole, that's even better. Because what they're doing, if you say you've got a point of marsh and there's water wrapping around the point on a certain tide, 
what that does is create a tide rip right there. And what the trout will do is they'll sit in that tide rip and wait for bait to get flushed by them. And so as the bait gets flushed by them, that's what they're feeding on. And if you're going to be fishing that, I like to find those. So like if I'm looking for trout early season, what I'll do is just, you know, the tide rips I know that hold fish or the holes that I know that hold fish like that. I'll go to them, you know, start putting some jigs through them on the tides that I like, and then I'll keep moving. Uh, late season, there's like a mid season where they're, they're mobile, where they're moving from the marsh and they're starting to head their way into the creeks. And so like, say you're fishing around the Swansboro area in the White Oak River, when they start making their way at the White Oak, they'll stage up on the cross rocks, those big rocks in the middle of the river. You know, they'll get on those rocks and they'll feed on those for a while before they really head back into the back of the river or make their way back into the creeks that branch off of it. And, you know, like Queens Creek, they'll stage up on the bridge. There's some holes in Queens Creek that they'll get in. All stuff while they're working their way back to the back. But the real focus of this would be when we're back in those creeks. Like once the trout move back, back into those creeks, and it, it all depends on, I mean, they eventually get there no matter what, but it just depends on how they've been. Like last year, we didn't have any rain at all. And those creeks were salty all the way, you know, we were catching them further up the white oak than I can ever remember catching a trout in the white oak. I mean, places that you would never fish in your life. They were so salty that the trout had pushed all the way up there. And same thing in like Queens Creek, some places I fished in the new river. I mean, it was just everywhere. It was just so salty last year that they pushed up there. But once that water really cools down, they get back there in that deeper water. And that's where it's, once you have those tight areas like that, where those fish are at, it makes it, I won't say easier, but when you're, say you're fishing, you know, out near the Coast Guard Channel by Bogue or any of those areas out there. I mean, you're just hoping that they're going to be, even if that tide rip is pushing around a point, they could be sitting a huge area out there. Or they might not even be there, but once they're in the creeks, that's where they are and that's where they're going to be for the winter. And it's kind of, you know, fishing a barrel when you're back in those areas. All right. So, but I'm, I don't know that people share, like our, my novice anglers share that fish in a barrel. So back in the creeks, like that's where I'd love for this conversation to go. Cause we are talking, you know, this is released in November. So we're really talking later fall and not even fall going into wintertime. And again, it might be second nature for you, but if I'm back in those creeks, I mean, there's still a lot of real estate and there's still a lot of grass lines. There's still a lot of points. There's still a lot of current rips and holes. And so for someone who's just trying to figure this out, like how, how you might know the rips that traditionally hold fish, but I don't, and the holes that do, but I don't. How how does a guy keep from being overwhelmed and try to pick areas to target without feeling like I got to cover everything? So if I'm so like I'm if I'm fishing a new area, like if I'm going to a creek I've never been on New River or in the news, what I'll do is I'll get on my depth finder and watch it. And a safe bet is almost always that when you're back in the narrows and, you know, when you're in the narrows of a river or creek or what they're winding and bending everywhere, the outside of a turn is almost always going to be the deeper part of a turn. There's almost always going to be a hole on the outside of a turn. And it's just, you know, the way they've been carved over time. And I'll look for that. Those holes are always a good spot to put at. And then you want to watch where if you're ever like, it'll look weird sometimes on like, you'll be in a straightaway and just assume that, you know, you've been watching eight feet forever. And then all of a sudden you see a spot where eight feet goes to six feet. And then it rides that line, that little transition right there somewhere that you'd really want to cover too. And not to say that the fish won't be, you know, they sometimes they'll sit just on, you know, six foot of water in a line, but those are usually going to be on your warmer days or when the water's not as cold. But if you had like a hard snap of cold, they're going to get down in the deep where the water doesn't change. The water temperature doesn't change as much in that water column. 
and that deeper water holds oxygen better than the water higher in the water column. Is there any element of like looking for bait and fish around the bait or are you using that to help guide your decision? Sometimes I won't, if sometimes you'll see them blowing up bait, but it's, I mean, when they're back in the creeks, they're usually down deep, but sometimes whenever you're riding around on the trolling or on your, whenever I'm looking for something, I'll look for the, you know, that, that big blob of bait on my depth sounder. And if I see that on sonar, you know, that might be a, a reason to stop and fish right there. But for the most part, you know, I just try to find the habitat that they're going to be in rather than looking for bait. Okay. Well, let's, um, we're going to talk a little bit about positioning and, and strategy, I think, afterwards and afterwards, as in after we talk about some rigs and bait. And so why don't, before you take me to terminal tackle, though, go ahead and just spend a minute telling me about the rod and reel setup and, you know, and, and the braid or, or whatever you're using and then get me to the terminal tackle, please. So... I like a 2,500. I use all pen reels. Uh, let me move my head the right way. Wrong shoulder, yep. right there. Boom, pen. Um, I use a 2,500 pen. Um, I'll rig that up with 10 pound braid. And then from 10 pound braid, I've got, I use a seven foot medium Fenwick. Um, you know, any of medium, a, a cork rod's not the, you know, you're not making, I mean, you're making good casts, but you're really not making, you know, like very specific target casts, like you would be red fishing or something. So, you can get away with using just about any rod when you're corking, but I like a seven foot medium on a 2,500 reel. All right. And then now take me to the end, take me to the terminal tackle, the rig. So this is the fun stuff. When I'm out in the marsh, if I am going to use live bait, I won't be using most of the time. I'm not using a slip cork just because there's so many moving parts on a slip cork that you will get tangled up. There's, there's no way around it. You know, anybody's going to get tangled using a slip cork. So if it happens to you, don't feel bad about it. I, I, I tell everybody I'm not a, you know, I'm a professional knot untangler who's pretty good at fishing. And uh, that's what we do during trout season. But if I'm out in the marsh, I'm using a popping cork. And I won't necessarily be popping it. I'm just going to use this so that I can float my bait at a fixed depth. Like if I'm fishing around an oyster rock or, you know, somewhere shallow in the marsh where those fish are set up around a point, this is what I'm using. It's just easier to cast, tangles less, and you don't have to worry as much about, you know, parts on the rig going out because well, I'll explain it in a minute when we go to the float rig, but there, there's so many parts to it. And then there, every one of them is a failure point that can go wrong or get you tangled. So it's just easier to use this. I like the popping corks from fathom. They've got a titanium wire in them. So, you know, they can bend and then they'll always hold their shape and come back. They're not going to get tangled up. They're not going to get, you know, a little crimp in them and then the cork's no good anymore. So I'll use this with about two foot a liter on it with a weight, on that leader to suspend my bait or to get my bait down and just keep it at a certain depth. Um, I'll use a number six treble hook if I'm floating shrimp and I'll use a one knot circle hook if I'm using mullet. But then the other rig, which is what we're really probably going to focus on is the slip cork. So this is the one I prefer to use. It's the adjustable depth popping cork that uh, Betts makes from Billy Bay or Billy Boy, Billy Bay. And this is pretty much one of your more traditional ones. This is just a weighted slip cork from Billy Bay. And the way they operate is you're going to have your cork. I'll use this one just for, or, or use this one. So what you've got for the most part is your bobber stopper goes on the rod first. This goes on your main line. And every pack you get will come with a bobber stopper. And if the tackle shop's worth it, they'll have, you know, packs of bobber stoppers you can buy. 
So this goes on first on your main line. It comes in a little tube. You slide the line off the tube, the bobber stopper off the line or off the tube onto the line, take the tube off, and then you'll pull this tight on both ends. And what that's going to do is create it somewhere on your rod that you're going to set your depth for how deep you want your shrimp or mullet or menhaden or whatever you're floating to go. So you put that on and then a bead goes on to catch the bobber stopper. And then you run your line through the cork, through the middle of it from top to bottom. And then once that goes on, put a little weight. I just like a, you know, an eighth ounce weight, nothing big, just something to help get your bait down. And then you tie your swivel on. And then that's going to be everything on your main line. And then from there, you'll tie your leader. I usually, I don't tie the longest leader in the world from here. You don't really need it, but I'll go, how big will I go? Like 18 inches, maybe a foot to 18 inches. And then you're going to put a treble hook, a number six treble hook on the other end of it. And I like a 20 pound leader. This one's a little heavier just so I can show it on camera, but I'll use a 20 pound leader, um, you know, fluorocarbon. And that's the basic setup of your float rig. The reason I like this adjustable depth popping cork instead of the regular float cork, the regular float cork from them, it's got a little from bets has a little weight in the bottom of it. So your cork sits upright. This, I know a lot of people, they like the corks that, you know, they're not, they're unweighted, but it's a lot harder to tell if you're tangled because there's nothing more aggravating than making a cast and you've made this incredible float. You know, you've covered all the area you want to and nothing like not even a, you know, a little black drum or, or a sand perch or anything touched your bait. And then you reel it up and you realize that you were tangled and your shrimp's been sitting on top of your cork the whole time. So with this cork, whenever you cast it out and you throw it, the cork itself is weighted on the bottom. So, or the rod is weighted. So whenever you cast, if you're tangled or you're hung up or something's not right, the cork will lay on its side and you know that something's wrong. So you can go ahead and get it back in, get it right and get it back out. Whenever you make a good cast and you know you're right, the cork will sit up and you'll hear it clink every time whenever it falls in place. And that's the basic gist of all the good tackle that I use when we're live bait. No, man, I, I like that. So I didn't, I wasn't aware of that adjustable bobber from Billy Bay. So that's a great tip right there. And then, you know, yeah, the slip click rig, when you were to go back to the pop and cork rig that you don't really use as a pop and cork, but just as a cork in the marsh, did you say pretty, I mean, I know you can adjust the depth by adjusting the length of the leader, but pretty standard would be two feet on that as well. Yeah, about two feet. And what I like to do with that is, just sometimes depending on what I'm doing, you know, if you're using like a mullet or a mud minnow or something, I won't for the most part put a weight on there because the weight of them or them trying to swim away will keep them down or keep them trying to go. But if I'm using a shrimp and I want to make sure the shrimp stays down, what I'll do is run my leader and however, you know, about halfway, three quarters of the way down, I'll put a little overhand knot on it and then a bead and a weight so it'll catch itself. And then I'll tie a hook on the other end of it just so I know it gets down. But like I said, when you're fishing in, if I'm using this, I'm fishing around an oyster rock or I'm fishing in shallow water in the first place. So it's not the the most important thing in the world to make sure your bait gets down. But if you're fishing in high current, then you might want to put a little weight on there to make sure it goes down. All right, man, uh, I think we're ready to start going to application about how to put this into motion. So, man, I guess we're in the, you know, the fish have moved up into the creeks or back into the creeks. And we're on your boat and we're headed in and, you know, I guess we're armed with live shrimp and, you know, some float rigs. So what would be, what would be the type of 
area you'd want to hit first, man? Are we hitting a hole? Are we hitting a transition? Are we hitting a rip? Like what would get, what would give you the most confidence to start the day? Let's say it's late November and it's really, really cold outside and it's been cold for a few days. We're going to go find a hole that I know they've been sitting in and I'm going to fish deep there. The, the way I always like to start is I'll, and it's important, it's really important to know the depth that you're fishing at. So if you're fishing a corner and you know that there's a hole there and you know the hole is 10 foot deep or 12 foot deep, then you're going to want to say it's 12 foot deep. You're going to want to set your cork to about 11. And a lot of it's eyeballing. You might have to get hung on the bottom a couple times to realize that you're, you know, a little too deep and then come up. But what I like to do is start just off the bottom and then work your way up from there in the water column until you figure out where the bite is. So why start deep and go shallow as opposed to go start shallow and go deep? Is there a rationale? Well, the fish are, when they're back in the creeks, they're usually deeper anyway. So you're better off to start deep and either way will work, but you're going to, I feel like you're going to find them first. If you're going deep and going up rather, you've got a better chance of finding. If you're in a 12 foot hole, you got a better chance of finding fish at eight feet than you do starting at two feet and going down. Um, I'm guessing we're anchored up. Are we trolling motor anchored? Are we traditional anchored or are we not anchored? Traditionally anchored. Um, if I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up and I'm going to nail down with my, I've got a Minkota Raptor. I'm going to put the Raptor down and then we're going to set up and float the corner. You know, I'm going to have everybody set up at a certain, and if we've, if you've got a bunch of people on the boat, what you can do is, you know, not everybody has to float at 11 feet to start with and then go up to 12. You can set everybody at different depths and then cover, you know, twice the amount of ground and half the time. Are you setting up at such to where I don't even have to cast? I just sort of drop it off the back of the boat or is that not always the case? That's not always the case. It's dependent on your location. A lot of times, um, if you're, sometimes you'll get into a spot where you can do that, where you can just pitch it off the back of the boat and let it run. But like, if you're on a straight stretch, you know, where there is a dip or something that you're going to be fishing, or you're just fishing a straight stretch, then that'll be what you're, you're going to drop it, leave the bale open and let it run. If you're, um, in a corner and even in a corner, you're still going to have the bale open and let it run because what'll happen is if you're, if you're set up on the corner, like if you're set up on the point of a turn and you're right here and you're going to throw to this corner and then let it run. If you've got your bale down and you've got the line tight, what's going to happen is it's going to start running a short line on you and you're not going to get to float that whole turn. You've got to make your cast, leave your bale open and let the line flow. So even if the line's flowing sideways from you, it's letting that cork float naturally all the way around that turn as it follows the tide. And I'm guessing that's like a big variable here is letting the cork float naturally, especially with live shrimp, probably even more than live, um, live mullet or minnow. I'm, I forget what you said your circle hook bait might be. Yeah. Yeah. I really like to let, if you're aside from making the biggest drift possible, if you're, you know, if you've got your line tight, what you'll see too, a lot of times is that it'll speed up because it's, you know, it's tight and then the line's pulling it in addition to the current pushing it. And you're just not, you know, the shrimp's not trying to go by the trout at 150 mile an hour. You know, he's just floating with the current like he normally would be if he's getting pushed around. And so that real, that realistic presentation is another big part of it. So I know you, as a captain, you get anglers of all different skill level on your boat. What's the area that people mostly mess up with, or what's the most, where, where do you have to coach on the most as far as a successful drift? Um, I'd say it all starts with the cast because you're not, you can't 
a float rig's more of a lob whenever you're making that cast. You're not trying to, you know, if I'm telling you, if I point at something and say, you know, you see that bush right there, throw just to the left of it, then I just mean get it relatively close to that when we're floating shrimp. It's not like, you know, you're trying to put a bait right in front of a redfish or, you know, you've got to hit it right on this point where you think this trout bite's going to be. You know, if they're in that bend, they're somewhere around there. And if you make that slow float, they're going to come find it. But what a lot of people will do is they'll make a, you know, they think they've got to come back and they've got to rip it like they're trying to make, you know, some Bassmaster All-Star cast. And like, like when I was explaining how the rigs work, there's so many moving parts on them that if you really give it that rip, they're so easy to get tangled up. And then you end up spending a lot more time to, you know, untangle than you do fishing. The real thing you want to do with them is, you know, it's just a real kind of three-quarter lob that you'll make. And you just let the rig get out there and do its job. And when these uh, adjustable depth floats, they've got a little more weight to them. So it's easier to make that lob than it is, you know, with an unweighted cork or just this. Okay. What about, what about, uh, you know, I guess on the boat, they say, what do I do once I have a bite? I mean, you're telling them obviously to keep an eye on the cork, but again, how do you coach clients? How do you coach your guests? You know, if they're successful enough to find fish? The biggest thing is just to have a sense of urgency. Cause if you see and what a lot of people hear him say is because what you're doing is with that line floating and everything's free, once the trout gets the shrimp and as dumb as fish are, they can tell when something's wrong. And when you're using a treble hook, a lot of times, you know, they're going to be hooked no matter what, but as dumb as fish are, if they bite into something and something's wrong, they know something's wrong and they can let go and get away from it. That's why like the hook set when you're fishing with artificials for trout is so important and even with this, when they, when they bite in and they feel something sting them, they know I need to let go of this. Something's not right. So it's just to have a sense of urgency because I'll hear a lot of people will be floating and then I hear them say, oh, my cork's down. It's like, well, let's reel. Come on. Let's close, close the bail and reel as fast as you can. You want to come tight on the line as fast as you can. There's no need for a hook set. There's no need to, you know, rip his face off to make sure the hook's buried. If he's got that treble hook in his mouth and you get to him in time, as long as you reel up tight and come tight, that hook will pull itself into his mouth. Um, man, you've, you've talked about like colder days and deeper water and then warmer days and maybe going shallower. Do other variables affect where you might decide to fish? I'm thinking about, you know, overcast days versus sunny days. And I mean, I guess that goes back to temperature as well, you know, yeah. or, or, or does the wind force you to, or encourage you to fish one side of a Creek over another Creek? Is it more about your comfort or does the wind actually affect the trout movement? I don't know that the wind will affect the trout movement as much, but it will really affect how you have to set up to be able to fish that area the way you want to, you know, if, if the wind's blowing dead in your face and you're trying to throw one of these corks that tangles up, you know, with they'll tangle up on the best days, it'll be a long day if you're trying to throw straight into the wind all day long. So sometimes you just have to set up with the wind to make sure that you're going to have because, you know, as bad as the wind can be when you're fighting it, it can be the biggest advantage you've ever had. You know, make when you're talking about a rig that's already hard to cast and you get a little bit of wind at your back, it can make all the difference in being able to throw it where you want it to. So it, I don't think that it affects where the fish are going to be as much, but it'll, it will affect how you'll want to set up the fishing area. Have you patterned anything else that will get you more excited that the bite's going to be hot or the bite's not going to be so hot? you know, as in regards to fronts, as regards to rain, salinity, like anything else that rain. you just sort of are paying attention to and might get you more excited or less excited? Rain is the biggest thing, I think, at this point with that, because the 
a lot of the areas that like we fish like the white oak river you know it's a it's a black river so you basically go from like a salt period to a, a freshwater period with a not a real you know long brackish intermediary intermediary period so like last year we had no rain and the salt line in the river was pushed way 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 up the river so we were catching trout way further up the river than i've ever caught them before and similar places from other people i was hearing and like places in queen's creek you know was catching trout all the way until i couldn't get my boat any further it was so narrow and when you're in those places say it's an average year where you're getting average rainfall you know up the white oak we you're not going to catch those fish in those places because that salt line is going to be pushed way down further from all the rain and all the runoff you're getting into the creeks and the rivers okay um as we were sitting here talking i, I realized a a question that i wanted to ask when we were talking about the rigs and the and the bait and you know the bait being primarily live shrimp correct mm-hmm. yep all right you'll so- use live shrimp until you just can't get them anymore and then mullet is a big option a lot of times whenever you're going for you know like bigger trout a mullet is something they're feeding on a lot of times and once the shrimp aren't here anymore those little peanut menhaden that are back in those creeks they're an incredible bait and it's what they're feeding on that time of year anyway and then and every tackle shop in the country is going to have mud minnows and a trout will eat a mud minnow very well all right how do you hook a mud minnow with your treble hook what's your technique right through same way i would hook a mullet but with a treble hook i go right where their gill plates meet on the bottom of their chin if they have a chin i go under that and then pop it right out the top of their nose but wait i I, maybe i jumped the gun are you even using a treble hook with a mud minnow or do you change the hook when you're talking about mullet and mud minnows i use a treble hook with a mud minnow just because they're smaller um if i'm using a mullet i'll use a one-aught circle hook and with a, a menhaden i'll use a circle hook a lot of times problem with the menhaden is that they, they just don't stay on the hook very well and they don't live very well a little bit of stress will kill them in no time so if i'm if the mud minnows are available i'll use them but at the same time you know if there's a if i don't have any shrimp and i see a school of pogies swimming by while i'm on the way to a spot it's hard for me not to throw the net on them either just to have them all right so now i'm going to ask you to sort of relive a conversation we recently had doing the weekly fishing reports and it has to go with access to shrimp. So in Swansboro, you got plenty of access to live shrimp that, you know, you're not buying shrimp. I mean, I think you gave a plug for pogies that you can buy live shrimp at pogies. But, man, that is a cost prohibitive if you're going to go multiple times. And so if we're making this access easy, help my help my viewers, my listeners out. How to cast net live shrimp for the purposes of trout fishing? So in our area, a lot of times what you'll do is go... I won't say a lot of times, most all the time, what you're going to do is the little creeks that are your tiny little tributaries that are off of the White Oak and Queens Creek and some places over uh, around the Emmerdale Bridge, um, little past Emmerdale Bridge, like Archer's Creek, those places, those nice muddy bottoms that the shrimp are on, that's where they'll be. Shallow, muddy, warm water is what they like. And you'll 90% of the time, whenever you're after them, you'll see them popping. So you'll see them, you know, jumping across the top of the water. They do their little backwards swim. You'll see them making those moves. And whenever you start to jump them up, that's when you want to start throwing the net and putting it on them. And it's not, it's, it can be good a lot of times where you're going somewhere and, you know, you see them pop in and then it's just every cast you throw, you're catching two dozen shrimp and, you know, filling the boat up with them in no time. But 
little later in the season you get the less shrimper around, you're going to have to throw the net a lot. You're going to have to, you know, make, you know, it might take six or seven casts to get a dozen and you've just got to keep at it and keep throwing until you feel you get enough to fish with. And do I need any advice for keeping my shrimp alive in the live well? Like, am, am I, can I do it just like I do my mullet minnows in the summer? Just make sure there's water in the live well that's running and dump them in there. Yeah. As long as you've got fresh water, um, you don't want to crowd them. Uh, if you, I want you can crowd them for a short period of time, but you don't want to crowd them, you know, overnight. You don't want to say you're, you know, you've got them in the live well with a bubble box or an aerator or something. You don't want to, if you leave a ton of them in the live well overnight, you'll probably wake up to a lot of dead shrimp, if not all dead shrimp. And the fresh, if you, my grandpa used to always say that he loved to, you know, go as fresh as he possibly could catch a trout and then work his way back. And he felt like that was where he would always find a lot of bigger trout. But if you take live shrimp into fresher water, like if you go way up to white Oak, you know, say towards like Grant's Creek or something, and then you're working your way back. If you stay in one spot up there for too long with your shrimp, they'll start to die in the live well just because of that fresher water getting put on them. Okay. Um, man, I, I think this is, I think we've hit all my question points, man. I think we've covered everything. And so, you know, the standard sort of wrap up of the podcast episode is, you know, what did we not talk about, man? What, you know, either, what did we not cover that you thought might come up or I didn't sort of set you up with a question and we moved along and you might've thought we need to go back to that you know, and or just final thoughts on, again, the whole purpose is trying to help people catch trout in the fall, late fall, winter months. What do they need? I would, I'd say if you're going to go with what you need, any tackle shop in the area is more than help, happy to help you out a lot. I mean, the Real Outdoors, Pogies, Dudley's, um, the boys at Casper's are great. I mean, anything, if you go, if you have any questions, just, you know, they're, they're there to help and they're there to help set you up with what you need um um, i'm sure you know anybody who if if there's anything i've said that you have a question about feel free to reach out to me and ask it i'm more than willing to help out um the one thing that i it gets away from a lot of people but i would definitely recommend it is that trout fishing if there's even a question of whether you should net it net it it's so easy for them to shake the hook and just be done with it real quick i've lost some heartbreakers right beside the boat um not having a net ready but you know, that's part of fishing, but it's just something good trout. Cause when trout are like flounder and just something I always like to tell people whenever you're, if they're coming to the surface quickly and you've got your rod tip up fighting them high, the angle of your line is going to pull that fish's head out of water. And if you're fighting a big fish, who's coming to the surface and he's trying to shake his head and you're worried about losing the hook, you got to put that rod tip low on the water and that angle will help keep his head down a lot better. That's just a little, a little something to help if you're or if you're fishing somewhere and you feel like you've you know shaken off a bunch of fish that's just something you can do because if you if you've got the rod tip high you're basically pulling him straight up and that'll keep his head out of water the whole time you're trying to fight him but if you can get that rod tip low whenever you're fighting him it'll help keep his head underwater and he won't be able to shake that hook as bad man i, I like that we ended that way I, I like to fish for the big trout so that that piece of advice is going to help me out the most i think i don't really like wasting my time with the smaller ones i'm, I'm just targeting big ones I've got um something else that I think you'll I you were talking about you know uh, managing expectations earlier as far as that guy went you know with a small trout that you know that might have been his you know greatest thing ever and I love that about fishing that it's all relative you know it, depending on what you're doing 
sets up whether or not you had an incredible day or a bad day. And I had a guy probably five years, five or it was 2016. So however many years ago that was, he first time he was ever fishing ever. He got on the boat with me. He was here on vacation, staying somewhere. And he picked my card up just for shits and giggles. And it turned out the next day he either had to find something to do or he was going shopping in Beaufort with his wife. And he didn't want to go shopping in Beaufort with his wife. So he called me and I was open. So we went fishing. Very first spot we went to, uh, you know, explained everything, how the rigs were going to work to him, what to do if he hooked up. He made his own cast. It was a pretty good cast for the spot we were at. And his rod went down, started fighting his fish. I thought it was a red as the way it was dogging him. But then about halfway through, I figured out it was going to be a big trout. It comes up and turns over on its side for us to see it. And it was just an absolute monster. We net it, get it in the boat. And I've got buck fever. Like I'm, I'm shaking and I'm so amped up. I'm like just about to throw up. I couldn't stand it. It ended up being a 30 and a half inch trout. And while I'm over here, like about to die, I can't stand it with this big fish in the boat. The guy looks at me and goes, so is that a good one? Or I mean, what is that? It's like, man, I know people have been doing this their whole lives and haven't, don't have one that big or half that big. I'm in the, I'm in the not that big club. That's for sure. <laughs> And uh, we went and got a citation, and after that, he was pretty – I think he sent a couple pictures of it to his buddies in a group text, and once their responses started coming back in, he figured out what he had caught. All right. Well, you've heard it here, man. You can book Matt Littleton for 30-inch speckled trout fishing, man. He'll deliver. All you got to do is just book him, and he'll make it happen. Matt Littleton, Friendly City Fishing Charters, man. Uh, now the joke's over. Now I'm truly just saying goodbye to you, man. Enjoy talking with you. Enjoy talking fishing or anything with you, man. Appreciate you very much. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. Yes, sir. Billy Thorpe, what do you think, man? All right. Well, uh, yeah, 30-inch fish, the guy doesn't know. You know, I lost a poker game like that one time. Guy said, oh, I guess you beat me. I just have a, two pair of eights, and I wanted to punch him in the face. So same thing right there. You know, whatever. That's so that's a funny story, man. Like, oh, so is this 30 inch trout? Is this any good? I'm like, if I can get a one bigger than that picture we showed earlier, I'm pretty stoked. So <laughs> if I can just get one on the hook, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, um, like I'm trout fishing's fun. Little ones fight they little ones will smack that, at least artificial. You know what? I just enjoy the shrimp pulling around on the hook, honestly. Like <laughs> anyway. Oh man, so I got a couple takeaways for you. Um, one, I loved all the bobber rigging stuff that he was talking about. I think all that stuff is good. I like those slip float rigs. Um, personally, I've had a lot of luck with them. But I was really interested in, you know, he said a couple times throughout the show, like fish shrimp for as long as you can. So that's always a question, like what bait, what should I use? Um, and then just explaining how to keep those shrimp alive longer. Cause you're right. Like, it's like, if you go buy them, they're, it's going to be expensive. If you catch them, it's, a, you know, you, you get them in the live well, you want to take care of them and keep them, keep them fresh. So I think all that, all that information of, you know, we're getting the bait, getting it, keeping it fresh, uh, is, is all good advice as far as, uh, don't crowd them. So make sure, give your shrimp some room, man. Don't, don't just hoard them up like prisoners, okay? Like what? Are you, like what are you doing? Huh? Give them some space. Build a little luxury water box there. Yeah, I mean, they're chill. extremely valuable. Those each yeah. one of those live shrimp are extremely valuable. Treat them with TLC. I'm with you. Yeah, man. So hopefully these fishermen will start taking care of their shrimp better. <laughs> That's a t-shirt, Gary. We gotta we gotta figure that out. Don't abuse your shrimps, okay? <laughs>
Anyway, it's been good, man. Always enjoy Matt. He's a good time. So uh, be sure to call call him, get him on the boat, ask him a bunch of questions, pay him a little bit of money, get him on the boat, and get that 30-inch trout and send us a picture of it. How's that sound? That sounds like a good yeah. line. And I'll join you. If you if you only have one or two. <laughs> of course you will, Gary. Then hey. go ahead and put me on the boat. I'll make you famous. If you're paying, I'll bring the bologna sandwich, all right? <laughs> I got chicken bologna, I got turkey bologna, I got beef bologna. What kind of bologna you want? What kind of bologna, huh? Oh, my gosh, man. All right, Gary. Well, this has been a good show, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate Matt. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. Fisherman.